When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey gang, welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode, like all other episodes, has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. And this week, we've got two new patrons I want to announce. Jordan and Ryan, thank you so much for your support. So, we've had several listener and fan requests for some sheep content. So today, we found a gentleman with Amy Livestock out in California that does sheep and also does some cows and uh, has his own podcast. So I'm really looking forward to this one. And uh, let's give Ryan Mahoney a warm welcome to Ranching Reboot. Ryan, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you met CK? No, no. Not officially. I've been talking to you for the last five minutes and kind of the before the record has started. But good to meet you, CK. Where at in California are you? I am in, uh, we call it the Sacramento River Delta. So we are, if you draw a line from San Francisco to Sacramento, mm-hmm. we are right in the middle um, there. And we're kind of far enough away from freeways that we're still a pretty small town. Yeah. Uh, I think there's like 1800 people. Well, there was 1800. Now I think it's like 6,000 because they had a development going in the last 10 years. But mm-hmm. um, I grew up here, um, left for college and came back and, and yeah, we've got a little, little nice little corner of the world here. Yeah, I like that area. I'm actually, I went to Chico State for undergrad. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> we had a lottery of Istans go to Chico. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are you downstream of Oroville Dam? Uh, yeah, we're way down. So we're actually in the mouth of the bay almost. Yeah. So we're freshwater, but the uh, but we're like just, I mean, you can take a boat and in 30 minutes you'll be in the bay. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Amy Livestock. Sure. So Amy Livestock is, uh, I'm a fifth generation sheep rancher. Um, we, uh, my family came here to the area and settled in like the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I was raised on the home ranch where they originally bought. Um, and then my grandpa kind of took the ranch in the, about the fifties and he really grew it to what it is today. And then two years ago, I was able to buy the ranch from the family and, so now we successfully um, planned. I had lunch with my grandpa today. He's still around and giving me lots of advice, and I gladly accept. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're we're uh, we're a diversified uh, livestock operation. We raise cows and cattle and sheep. Um, we have um, Angus cows. Um, we raise one third of them bred to Angus for replacement heifers for ourselves. And then, um, the other two thirds, we contract with snake river farms and, um, bring in Wagyu bulls and sell American Kobe beef calves to, to them to then sell to the marketplace. And then we have, (laughs) it's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. I like, is that a dog behind you there? Yeah. He looks famous. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's a face for radio right there <laughs> you should hear um, when he snores yeah. <laughs> yeah that's awesome um so then we have sheep too um we ra- we have uh i think right now we have around four thousand mother ewes that we um they're all fine wooled rambolets um we raise the meat lambs and sell them to superior farms fat and we um, sell the wool to imperial yarn out of oregon um, and then they make all sorts of fun stuff with it. Um, we also have irrigated pasture where we buy in feeder cattle and buy in feeder lamb and we back around the cattle and then we'll sell fat lambs off the clover. And then anything that doesn't, um, sell off of the clover of the lamb side, we, um, run through a, uh, lamb feedlot right here in Dixon, California. So we're pretty diversified in a lot of different segments, um, but not huge in any one, I guess. Okay. I've never actually heard of a lamb feedlot. And to be honest, before we, like, right before we started, I had the, I had a question come in. Sure. And maybe, maybe we can kind of use this to frame a lot of the discussion yet to come. Um, one of my, one of my patrons, William Cagney asked, why not sheep from a cattleman's perspective? And since you're a guy that's obviously involved in both in a very diversified operation, I'd love to hear your take on that because, and where I'm going with this, you know, a lot of us are, are really looking at our input costs and, and the calf market and what everything costs these days. And I think a lot of people really need to find another way to generate a revenue source off their land without taking something off the plate from what they're already doing. Yeah. So, um, why, why sheep, why not sheep? Um, it's a great question to ask. Um, if you look at a lot of other countries, um, a lot of cow ranches have sheep, um, in California, there's kind of more, or in California, in the U S there's more of a stigma seems like between cowboys and Jeep ranchers, probably because they went to war in the 1800s and in the mountain States. But, um, on our, on our ranch, um, the sheep and cattle have to be run together for us to be as successful as we possibly can. Um, sheep and cattle target different species of grasses. Um, they, we feel they create healthier pastures, um, parasites that pass through cows, um, die when they try to pass through a sheep and vice versa. Sheep parasites die when they try to pass through cows. So if you're on an intensive operation, running those species together does help with parasite control. It doesn't eliminate it, but it helps. Um, and um, just I, I don't know. I heard one time that if you run like one sheep underneath a cow, oftentimes they can run year round and you won't even notice they're there as far as what they're taking food stuff wise. Now, if you're supplementing them, you know, seven months out of the year, then you'll probably have to supplement that sheep too. So it won't be so free, but on a pure grass year round deal, um, you know, that, that sheep really does benefit that operation. And then the markets aren't, they're related, but they're unrelated. So, um, in the cattle market, it's been kind of flat. Um, I, I, I think there's a op- lot of opportunity in the cattle market right now. I think we're, we've been primed up to get a run for the last gosh, three or four years, it seems like. So I keep thinking it's coming. Um, but two years ago when, when COVID hit, we had a collapse of the sheep market and then a, just an absolute record um, run. And we're still just kind of, t- we're kind of correcting off of that record run, but it's, it's, it's really nice to have both species and kind of hedge those markets against each other. Um, so it, it's been, it's been 
really beneficial for us economic, you know, sheeponomically or ranchonomically to have both species. Sheeponomically. Yeah. That, ooh, that's a good one. You got to put that I, on your t-shirt. I titled our last podcast. So that <laughs> it just is on top of my head. <laughs> well, it, good segue to, uh, to, to mention your podcast and we can circle back around to that one later. So with, what's your podcast about? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to shameless plug there, but, um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, me and, and Dan Macon, uh, started a podcast called sheep stuff. You should know a couple years back. And, uh, we since record also with, uh, Dr. Rizal Bush, um, and who's a veterinarian at a, at a Davis. And, um, we just talk about sheep, also all things sheep. Um, and we just kind of sit down and have conversations. So, yeah. Okay. Do you talk yeah. about sheep too much and you want to talk about your cows today? Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, the sheep are, sheep are such an incredible species. Um, they're very complimentary to any kind of beef ranch. Um, they, they bring a lot to the table. They diversify your markets. They help your animal husbandry skills. I feel quite a bit, um, because they kind of display their illnesses slightly differently. You have to anticipate things differently and it's made be a better cow man by running sheep um you're not so, the first person that i've heard say that yeah it it's i think it's fairly true i think it's fairly true the what you said about like how they show sickness i had i was having a conversation i can't remember with who um about sheep and maybe it was a podcast i heard but it was the sheep are more they can better hide their illness. They try to hide it, right? From a predator perspective. And yeah, the reason very... people are saying that sheep are just looking for a place to die is because they're not very good stockmen or they're not a good enough stockman to see that that animal has been sick for two, three, four days. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Uh, the other part of that is kind of the contrary to compliment the beef side. Um cows are so um, resilient they're able to be, you can have a cow that's lived 15 years and then you do an necropsy on her and you find the 47 things that she's been living with for the last five and you're shocked that she lives so long um, sheep uh, but sheep have a very high pain tolerance and so they they very much especially if there's any sort of stress so like you bring them into the corrals to work them um like uh in our area we have a lot of soil moisture during the winter months and so we get a lot of foot rot and you'll go and you'll drive slowly through a field and you'll see all these sheep with foot rot limping a little bit. And then you bring them into the corrals and you start looking at them and you don't see any because they're all hiding it when they're in the corrals. And so it's yeah. really hard to, to, to see those diseases as they're developing in the, in the sheep and cattle or in the sheep. Um, whereas cows, it's a little more obvious when they're sick, but cows present plenty of challenges. I mean, you're dealing with a 1200 pound animal and trying to trying to manhandle it and doctor it before the illness gets too bad it, 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 that's a huge challenge on its own sheep you can train dogs to help um, take them down you can you can get to them a little easier and handle them yeah. a little easier so there, there's challenges to both but and, and i keep coming back to they're different but being able to know the differences has made me more in tune with both i guess is probably how i would say it so i can understand that it I think part of what I just heard you say was when sheep are, are out of the pasture, they're a little bit stressed. Even if they are in the pasture, you're not going to see 
their true state. Like yeah. they're, they're going to hide that illness from you as as soon as they as soon as they sense a little bit of stress, they're going to hide that illness from you. That's what I think I heard you say. Yeah, they're very stoic. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Interesting. And they also hate being separate. So any any time you separate a sheep off from its from its herd, um, that that's that's much more stressful for them than when you like you have a cow that's a little sick. You can peel her off and she's not as stressed. You try to peel a sheep off in the same manner and it won't work near as well unless she's very, very sick. But, um, and it's because of that, that herding instinct in the two, it's a, it's the same herding instinct, but one's stronger in the sheep than the cow. Cows are more independent, I think. Well, like our cows, you know, a decent sized cow herd, a lot of times, you know, they'll split up into, you know, subgroups and go to different parts of the pasture. Yeah. And, I'm sensing sheep don't do that, that they just, they stick in one. No, not really. They kind of stay together for the most part. Um, I've actually heard that goats are the, um, the biggest clickyish type animal. They actually really? create little groups of like six to 10 and they, that that's what they stay with. They, they kid together, they graze together. Like they're all synced up in these little tiny clicks. <laughs> which is fascinating to me i'm not a big fan I, I i don't run goats i had goats at one time and i'm i'm glad i don't have them right now but <laughs> I, I learned I that the other day i thought it was fascinating yeah i thought you were gonna say they're fiercely independent and that's why they get into everything <laughs> well that's a whole nother issue but no they're very clicky so it's like you yeah. know five to six of them get into everything <laughs> so, yeah it's interesting cows are kind of like in between those two extremes Okay. So um you meant you said you had fine wooled rambolet. Yeah. Uh so that implies that every once in a while that they're peeled. Yep. So what uh what's what's that process like and what do you do with the wool? So yeah, peeled, so what does that mean? Is that, is that weird? Okay. Do you guys yeah. call it peeled? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, you can call it all sorts of things, but yeah, peel peeling them. Yeah. Killing an orange. <laughs> yeah, you're getting that getting that fleece off. Um, so we shear once a year. That's what our sheep require. Uh, we act we shear around April 1st. So we literally just finished it two weeks ago. Um, we hire in a crew of sheep shears, and the sheep shearing crews go around the state or nation, depending on what kind of crew they are, and shear sheep for a living. Uh, we pay them five dollars and thirty cents a head this year, which is very expensive. Uh, when I started, high. yeah, when I started 15 years ago, it was like three bucks, but how many can they do in an hour? I'm going to do quick math. Uh, they do around a hundred a day, um, on our sheep. It depends on the size of the sheep and, um, how much, uh, like one of the things that slow them down are, is leg wool. So the more wool down the legs and into the face, the slower it takes them to shear the less wool on the legs and the less wool on the face, the you know, the easier it is to, you're just sharing the kind of the center part of the sheep. Um, but, and so like a really clean sheep where you're just, you, they probably, you know, some of your really good shears can do 200 to 300 in a, a day. But, um, well, most of our guys, they, they do around, you know, a hundred of, of our kind of sheep and we have a really big frame sheep. So our, are you, are you is about 190 pounds, 180 to 90 pounds. Um, so she's a pretty big sheep. Um, and she has about, um, nine pounds, nine and a half pounds of clean fleece wool. So she produces about 
you know, 11 to 12 pounds of total wool, but you have to take out the stuff that has manure on the back. The bellies come out because when they're laying down, it mats the wool on the belly and that has to get cleaned in a different process. The wool on the top of the head and the shoulders get kind of skirted out um, just because of the way it, the way it grows. It's the same wool, but it's, um, it's just, it just presents itself a little differently. So it has to go through a different process. And then the clean fleece wool, that's the stuff on the sides and the back um, for the most part. Our wool is about uh, four inches long. Um, after a year's worth of growth, it's, uh, they measure the diameter of the wool. Um, and ours is about a 21 and a half micron. Um, 22 and up micron, when you put it against your skin in a garment, is itchy. Under 22, oh. it's not itchy. And so you really fine, fancy wooled suits are going to be like 18, 19 micron wool. Do they have and it on tags? So if I look for that, will I see that? Some places advertise it, but it's, um, so if you shear, like we shear, you know, if 4,000 ewes that we shear, um, our average micron is 21 and a half, but within that clip of wool, you have 19 micron to 24 micron. Right? Yeah, you have a bell curve. And so to be able to say like, this is definitely 21 micron wool is kind of, it, it gets into that, that marketing gray area and there's plenty of marketing. So I, 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 you can definitely find like 19 micron and under uh, wool for different things. But um, a lot of it, more a lot of them won't put it on the tag but if you start getting to know different wool companies some do better than others at having consistent quality wool um and when you get into your really high-end suits they're going to be nice so i mean you're going to spend four or five hundred dollars on a suit it better be nice or else you're going to not be in business so. yeah i feel like the uniforms that i had in the navy were about 35 maybe 36 yeah. microns. so there's a there's a thing called the brady amendment which requires uh stuff for the u.s military if it can be to be bought and sourced in the u.s so a lot of the u.s clip wool clip goes to the military um and so yeah you got a lot of good american wool in that and it's probably sitting around a 22 23 microns so, <laughs> especially your coats and jackets yeah so. the the pea coat sometimes almost seemed a little bit softer than the, than the, uh, Navy blue pants, but yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. It, it's pretty crazy. The, the, that the wool industry has gone through a lot of challenges and, and changes over the last 20, 30 years. Cause there used to be a ton of manufacturing up in mostly in the Northwest or Northeast. Um, but then in the 90s, uh, when stuff was getting outsourced and China was growing, all that production went overseas. And you had a couple of really fantastic companies, Chargers down in South Carolina and uh, Bowman's down in Texas. They're pretty much the two uh, cleaning plants that are left in the U.S. Um, and so all wow. the wool kind of has to go through there. And, and a majority of the wool gets exported now. And, and so it's really a it's just gone through this crazy change. But then in the last couple of years, it seems like there's a resurgence of demand for locally sourced wool and in us sourced wool. Um, a lot of it is you look at the marketing campaigns for your polyester, like your Nike undershirts and stuff. And it all says natural, you know, we need moisture wicking and, uh, doesn't smell. And this is a breathable fabric, but wool is naturally breathable, naturally doesn't smell naturally more moisture wicking. And so it really fits the, 
and it's biodegradable and it's, you know, it, it, it literally, you trim it off and it grows right back again. So it's not a, <laughs> you're not pulling it out of the ground and, and use yeah. it at one time. It's a, a regenerative, you know, product. And so it really fits a lot of, a lot of the marketing plans and consumer demands of a lot of people nowadays. And so that's kind of exciting. And that kind of led us to start marketing our wool through, um, Imperial yarn up out of Oregon, um, because that's what they're based on is a climate beneficial wool, um, from places that, you know, don't, don't have negative carbon farm, uh, footprints and actually, um, you know, it's a U.S. processed, um, wool. And so it's sourced locally and, it, and you can trace it back to where, where it came from and stuff like that. And so it's really been kind of fun to watch. We've been doing that for four years now, five years almost. And it's been pretty successful. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, you know, what happened to the wool after it left the farm? You know, you said, so it's got to go from your place to the two cleaning plants. And then it goes like <laughs> right back to where you're at, just up the road to Imperial. Oh, it's even crazier than that. So, um, so it goes from our sheep, the shear takes it off. It goes into a bale and then we put the bale in our barn. Then we take that bale and we put it on a truck and we ship it down to a warehouse in Bakersfield. Bakersfield, they do the core test. So they have to sample every bale um, to yeah. see what the wool is. And then they test that wool in a lab in New Zealand in order to tell you your diameter, your strength, your color, all those kind of things. Then from there, it goes on a rail car and ships over to South Carolina. It gets cleaned in South Carolina. Then from South Carolina in top form, then it goes to the spinner to be made into yarn in Kentucky or wherever it is. And then once it's made into yarn, then the yarn has to get dyed. And so then once it gets dyed, then it has to be woven into a fabric and the fabric has to be based on where it's going to sell into. So then once it, and there's different weavers and different styles of weaving, depending on whether you're making a blanket or a hat or socks or, or what, and then from the weaver, then you have to go to a, a, a tailor to actually make it into whatever it's going to be. Then you have, but you have to also have designers design what the end product's going to be. And it's just, it's so complicated that supply chain before it actually ends up sitting in a JC Penney's or I guess nothing sits in JC in an Amazon warehouse. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was trying to keep count. And that's like a seven step process. Oh yeah. And I think I'm leaving stuff out too. It's really amazing how complicated that textile industry is, how, what it takes to actually make a sweater. And it, it's the same for cotton and a lot of stuff. Wool's a little more because it's kind of a unique fabric or unique, it's not a unique fabric, unique fiber, but um, it's really incredible that, steps in between i i would agree with you that cotton is probably pretty similar post-harvest yeah but, but pre-harvest uh i think cotton is um <laughs> a little easier overshadowed <laughs> by wool as far as an input cost and an efficiency standpoint yeah well okay. yes and no so one cool thing is um so sheep don't just produce wool they produce lamb too so we're gonna you're able to, to, um, have two sources of income sold in two separate markets for the same overhead costs of running a sheep. Your yeah. only additional expense for the wool is your handling. So your shearing expense is pretty much the only difference in that. If you okay. went with haired sheep, so to say, instead of wool sheep. Well, if it, if it costs you five thirty to have one peeled, how much did, how much did the average, um, 
fleece um, net yet, or or you if you don't want to say the number, that's fine. Oh, it's fine. It's a market, so it fluctuates. Um, this last year, um, we're sitting at probably around a two dollar and fifty cent market for a under twenty two micron clean U.S. fleece. And that's your so, margin after you pay the peeler. No, that's the gross. So per pound. Okay. So two dollars and fifty cents times nine pounds. That's twenty two to twenty five dollars a head on that. We we do get a premium in our program. Okay. But um, generally, just open market, you know, two dollars and fifty cents would be at a twenty five dollar easy math. Just say you get ten pounds of wool, and so whatever the market is, it's <laughs> just move the decimal. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's kind of where I was. That's yeah. kind of what I was doing. Is just okay. Ten pounds, two dollars, twenty bucks. I get yes. it. You know, so fifteen dollars. That's not a bad margin. Yeah, not too bad. And and like I said, it's in it's additional margin on the same fixed overhead. So it's money you would be you make on, on top of your work you've already been doing. So you, if you don't peel them, you're just not going to receive that income. And from an animal health side, if you have wool sheep, you have to shear them. Right. You can't yeah. Not, can't not share them from my animal health. Are they really hard finding skilled labor? Yeah, labor in the sheep is in the sheep world is incredibly challenging. Um, a majority of the sheep herders in the U.S. Um, come through a, a work visa program called H two A sheep herder work visa, and the reason isn't um, it is specifically because of the skills it takes to be a sheep herder. Right. Um, and this is our operation or ranch is different from the majority of the U.S. The majority of the U.S. flocks are going to be herded, range herded on the mountain range in the in the western United States. So the Rocky Mountains slopes and those are all unfenced. A guy has to live with those sheep through the summer and walk them around and make sure they got water and stuff. And so that skill set is very hard to get. So the majority of those employees come through the H2A program. Um, problem when you're on any kind of immigration program is that depending on the, um, depending on, and this is not a, a statement one side or the other, depending on who gets elected president, it changes yeah. and it doesn't change. Like there's no consistency between D's and R's. It's just whoever gets in changes the rules and then changes the rules again and then changes it. So every four years to eight years, your rules are getting changed and it's getting more expensive. And then the other problem we're having in, in California is they, um, they're reinterpreting the rule to um, basically it's going to require a herder to be paid um, if they stay with their interpretation that they have now that a H2A herder would basically be getting around $140,000 a year plus room and board. And so you're looking at almost 200,000 in compensation annually for a sheep herder, which oh, is kidding. economically unsustainable because, you know, a thousand sheep is going to produce um, 1200 lambs. You need to save 20% for replacement. So that's 800 sellable lambs times $200 a head. That's $160,000 a year in gross income for the herd of sheep. And that one guy that's supposed to watch him on the mountains is going to be paid that or more according to that interpretation. And so there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people smarter than me that know way more about this issue than I do. Yeah. Um, that, that would be ones to talk about on it, but it, it's definitely a huge concern for 
um, sheep and goat herders. And also there's a lot of cow herders that come across through that same visa program. And it's a California specific issue. Because it's a it's a California rule that AB 1066, I think that got passed. And that's what's causing this. Well, that's coming out of everybody deserves a living wage, right? Kind of, yeah. Deserves a living wage, but they can't can't square that argument when it comes down to food because our food systems they 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 just can't square that argument. Well, I mean, and you can I, I think I think you can make a huge argument that in the US we have we have benefited from cheap food for so long. And uh, but the but the margin when food goes up in the store, a lot of times that margin doesn't end up at the farm gate. It doesn't end up with the rancher. Exactly. It, I mean, look at the beef price. That's the greatest example of that over the last two years. And the margin gets taken up in other spots. It gets assumed in, you know, that when you sell a wholesale product or a commodity, mo- a commodity product, you can't you're not you don't have the leverage to set price as well as uh, service industry or, you know, different layers in between. And so it's really, it's a huge challenge. And, um, and I'm, I, I, I really, so we, I, I have 20 guys that work with me and um, I, I really try to go above and beyond to help them out with everything we can. Um, we pay a fair wage. We have higher wages than what our minimum wages require and all those things. We've always done that. Um, we actually, um, we pay for the, the, we, we pay, uh, to help get the guys green cards or permanent residencies without any strings attached. Um, we, you know, we always get complimented from our housing inspectors that our housing is, is better than almost everybody in the state. And so like, I I'm a big believer in this, you know, we got to pay people what they're worth and what they're producing, but at the other side of it at $150,000 a year, that just doesn't work. It just flat out doesn't work. That would make um, you the the lamb ranchers and the sheep ranchers just have to sell their flocks, and um, because it's you know you have to you have to pay the people that grow your food, or else you have to grow the food yourself. And if you're not going to pay them enough to grow the food for you, you're not going to have it. And so that's the crazy thing that's kind of happening is they're saying, well, you need to cost it need you need to make it cost as much to grow my food for me. And I'm not going to pay you anymore. And that's where the disconnect is. And, and just kind of get what you're saying. It's just, and then they yeah. say, everybody deserves a living wage. And then they, then they'll turn, then you try to explain to them some of the economics of production. Yeah. And they turn around and say, well, if your business can't afford to pay your people, right. Why are you in business? Yeah. As, as they're sitting there, you know, well, in the consequence of getting that equation wrong is we run out of food. Like that's a, that's a question. Like, as it just says, it's like to take this from the societal standpoint, we can't get food production wrong in the U S we can't get the, that question wrong. If we get it wrong, we go hungry. Like you, you can't, like you can't afford to be wrong on that one. You got to pay your ranchers what they say they need to get uh, or, and if they don't produce the food, it's just not in the store or you're dependent on another country's food coming in here. I mean, we're so blessed in the U S with such a phenomenal, ability to produce, you know, protein and fiber to the world. And we're able to export every year because of it, but man, you, we got to get that right. And we got to, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it's really important. So I, I agree 100%, yeah. but I don't think that we're anywhere close to having it right. I think we're moving in the, yeah. the opposite direction. Well, this, this labor issue that I just brought up is a hundred percent proof of that point. Yeah. We, this is 
it's a ridiculous request that makes no sense. And it's, it's a request by somebody that thinks that they know better. That doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's just never that doesn't have a that doesn't have a dog in a fight, right? It's not a stakeholder that's saying this. It's somebody outside saying you should do this without fully understanding what it is that you do. Yeah, well, and I think a lot of it too. At least when we talk to people in California, it's um, oh well, that's the rule that was passed, so we got to deal with it now. It just that is what it is, and you try to articulate the argument, and um, they'll agree with you. But they're like, well, you know, it's a rule we pass. It's AB 1066. It's a law, law of the land. You got to do it. It's like, well, what? <laughs> Come on now. Well, there's a process to change it if you want to fight it. But for now, you got to go along with it and let the process, yeah. you know, let yeah. the process and, work. And state it. and federal law are in conflict on some of these interpretations too. So as a producer, you're forced to do you comply with the state law or the federal law? And the answer from everybody is, oh, we'll talk to your attorney and make a decision. Well, that. i'm trying to run sheep i don't want to spend my days in an office with an attorney so it's just it's crazy so yeah you kind of you kind of uncovered the hot button issue in the sheep industry right now (laughs) this is the one everybody's talking about what labor yeah yeah labor and this rule change and how it's going to affect everybody we've intentionally so we've intentionally not had a topic on it on our podcast because it's so <laughs> like up in the air right now. Yeah. And we so. get COVID warnings. I, I I don't care. Say whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, I feel yeah. like we had the same issue though when we tried to talk about the Colorado bill that tried to pass. Um, no one wanted the to pause talk about act. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one to talk about it. They're like, mm. we got mm. one in the California Ag uh committee right now, which would ban so. First, I got to go back. So the Biden administration, because of the antitrust uh, uh, issues with the beef industry, they I think they committed like a billion dollars to fund um, starting new packing houses and new feed yards um, to help small businesses kind of to create some competition in that arena. California has a law in the Ag Committee right now that would ban any new um, any new or expansions on all feedlots and um, slaughterhouses in the state of California. So while the federal government is trying to subsidize competition, states saying no. <laughs> like it's crazy. So why do they want to ban why do they want to ban new feedlots and new packing plants in California? I I you know what? So I, I was born and raised in California. I lived here. I, I went to school in Oregon for a year and then uh, Rome for four or five months. And then I ended up coming to California. So I'm a Californian through and through. And uh, we have crazy politics. And yep. if you spend your time trying to figure out why do they want to do this, man, you just go crazy. And so when you get like that, see, we're blessed with just this incredible weather. So when you get really frustrated, you just go outside, soak up some sunshine, do some wakeboarding on the river, do some spearfishing in the ocean, <laughs> go hang out with your sheep on the hills and, and it's all kind of okay. But um, <laughs> that's how we're able to put up with it. But no, it's a, you know, I, I don't want to speculate as to the why. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of push to, to stop animal you know, protein consumption in the U S as far as meat, meat production. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of crazy and that's a, all their arguments are totally flawed. Like, yeah, oh, I don't animal, even like getting cruelty. into 
It's animal yeah. cruelty. We need to stop this. We can just eat plant protein. Okay. Where are we going to grow all that? So we're going to get the fertilizer to grow all that. I heard a talk from, from uh, Dr. Frank Mitlerner out of Davis. He's a greenhouse gas expert. And he was, he said that he, um, he likes to quiz the vegans in his classes and he says, all right, so what do you eat? You eat all plants, right? You eat all plants. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what do they do to, how do they fertilize those plants? Well, they use like, you know, compost or something like that. Oh, where's the manure from that come from? Oh, darn it. It comes from animal production. So you, no matter what you try to do, you still are dependent on animal food production because you got to have it. So they get rid of animal food production. You got no, you got no manure waste. So you got no more compost, <laughs> compostable manure uh, fertilizer to grow the plants that we need to live on. Yeah. So. I came up with a very simple statement that can defeat almost any vegan argument and just totally shut them down. Say, shake the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Okay. If you're buying all of yeah. your vegan food at the grocery store, I mean, you have no idea what that crap is. It's just labeled vegan and you want to buy it because it makes you feel good. If you really want to be a vegan and you're really committed to that lifestyle, Try growing your own food. Try yeah. growing enough of your own vegetables that you can feed yourself 365 days, 365 days. Yeah. Or go to a farmer that does. Then you will have my respect. Until then, all the vegans of the world can piss off. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it's amazing. You, you, uh, it's that 365 day conundrum is what gets them because people forget winter is winter and it's hard to, you know, <laughs> hard to have food in winter. You got to figure out a way to have it. Yeah. Avocados don't grow in New York in February. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Last time I checked, they don't. <laughs> yeah. They don't even grow in Rio Vista. What does grow there? Uh, well, in my, in my home garden, tomatoes and stone fruit and stuff like that does great. Cherries are good. Uh, mm -hmm. We're in the, we're right in the California Delta and the Delta is just incredibly diverse in, in what it produces. Um, you can drive 10 miles from my house and you'll see everything from uh, cherry orchards to alfalfa fields, to wheat fields, to pear trees, to um, almond trees. You'll see blueberry patches, um, different um, strawberry. There's an incredible strawberry patch right next to Rio Vista across the river. Um, and then our Montezuma Hills, it's a uh, mostly cereal grains in the dry ground, um, non-irrigated ground. And then the sheep and cattle, and then up in Dixon, Dixon's one of the top tomato can canned tomato producing yeah. regions. Um, a lot of sunflower seeds. There's not going to be a lot of sunflowers this year because most of those go to Ukraine to get planted. But um, the a lot of sunflowers up there, walnuts, um, a lot of different nut crops all around. So I mean, it's pretty diverse. That's the crazy thing in Rio Vista is how, or in Rio Vista, in California, is the diversity of crops that are grown. I haven't spent much time in California, but the little bit of time I have, you know, I, I appreciate a drive by farmers markets in April uh, yeah. when I was out there for grass fed exchange, ZK. Yeah. Uh, drove past a couple farm, you know, farm stands right off the highway. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's cool. You know? yeah. And they had, they had so many more things than, than we're going to find in a farm stand here. And honestly, where I am like roadside farm stands, they don't happen. Got to get, Oddly enough, in eastern Colorado, where the population density is even lower, there's just a couple major highways that run through eastern Colorado that go east-west, yeah. and one of them is Highway 50, and uh, near the town of Rocky Ford, there's just 
produce stand after produce stand after produce stand. It's oh wow, it's, yeah, it's kind of neat, but nowhere yeah. near the diversity of what you guys have out there in California. Yeah, the diversity and scale is unreal. It really is amazing what 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 the climate's able to produce out here, and you're just able to do so much. So that's a good segue into talking about what what is your climate like? Like, how much rain do you get a year? And Sure. Uh, our normal rainfall, and we stay pretty steady within this range year to year, but um, our normal rainfall is about 16 to 19 inches, depending on what ranch you're standing on. Um, and typically it varies three to four inches one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, our rain is all in the winter. Um, so rainy season starts October and ends in um, May. Mm -hmm. Usually they have a, our local fair is uh, the Dixon May Fair and it's always Mother's Day weekend and it always rains on the May Fair and that's always when the rain's done. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty typical. Um, last year though, we had the worst drought we've ever had. Um, my grandpa's 92 and, and he's, he's never had any year like that in his history, but we got three to five inches of rain on the whole ranch and most of it came and really bad times and the soil moisture wasn't able it wasn't able to absorb absorb it very well and um we just we got hammered last year but um and hammered worse than we've ever been this year um, we're sitting at about 15 inches and uh, you go 30 minutes north and they're droughted out you go 30 minutes south they're droughted out you go 30 minutes east they're droughted out but we're in very good shape and it's i don't know why but it just worked out we worked out that way. And typically it does in our region. We're kind of close enough in the Delta and close enough to the ocean that we always get some moisture. Yeah, uh, That's good to hear. You're like the first person I've talked to in the last two months that claims they've had enough moisture. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really nervous to say it loud, but we literally have the best feed year we've ever had. I mean, it's just unbelievable how good the quality of feed is. It's quality and volume. And it's following on. <laughs> I always have to tell everybody because everybody else is in such bad shape, but it's it literally following by far the worst ever. Like, I mean, this, it wasn't even close last year that this year we have grass that's three to four feet tall last year, the same exact time we had nothing. They were walking on dirt and we were feeding hay. Some of the best grass that I've ever grown has been in a slightly below average rain year following a severe drought. Yeah. And it, it comes down to that management, letting that, you know, making sure that grass has enough rests yeah. You know, that, that rest period is adjusted appropriately for the conditions you're experiencing and making sure that grass isn't grazed again before it's ready, um, really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really value, we rotationally graze our livestock all over and, um, getting that rest days, right. Uh, even through the drought is, was really critical and helped us kind of get a good bump coming out of it. And, you know, having de-stocked 20, 30% of your cows, that helps with rest days. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the easiest way to get more rest is the de-stock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also the most expensive, but. <laughs> it's a tough decision. Yeah, yeah you got to do it. That was a hard day watching those cows go. But so we had, luckily, we were able to get them to another producer. So they stayed in the production chain. They didn't have to go to the butcher. So many guys had to send them to the butcher. And that's that to me is still preferable than trying to feed anything through lack of feed. Yeah. So um, we took kind of a both hand approach last year. So we definitely bought a lot of hay and we fed a lot through the drought. Um, but I mean, we, we literally had no feed 
um I mean, it was i i can't I, I don't know i can't even believe it happened i guess it's kind of i'm still in shock at how crazy it was but um i mean i think we ended up feeding close to three tons per cow on the cows that we had left and then all of a sudden um last fall we got one day we had 10 inches of rain on one day wow and all of the water soaked into the ground and then we never got any rain until like three weeks ago and now it's just been like a half an inch every week and we just have this gorgeous feed it's been absolutely amazing the way the volume's down but the weather just came perfectly and um that rain in the fall came early enough that we still had good daylight hours and soil temperatures to grow all that um burr clover and fillery that we make our living off of mm -hmm. and then these spring rains brought the ryegrass on to where i had allergies for the first time in three years um <laughs> really knocked me sideways so yeah it it's been it's you know na nature is amazing it's so powerful and it's so strong and um it just it's incredibly humbling uh, working with livestock and being dependent on the land. It, it really, I mean, I think that's why so many people that are hundred percent dependent on the lamb eat meat because they <laughs> realists on, on, on what it actually takes and, and um, the dependency on all of, on the system that we all are. It's just, yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. There's, it's a very fragile system. And there's, I mean, there's some cracks showing. And you mentioned earlier, yeah. um, you know, your marketing channels for your cattle. Um, are you concerned at all or moving towards trying to direct market anything? Or is that any part, uh, any part of what you got going on? Yeah, so we don't do any direct marketing. Um, we have friends that do, we have neighbors that do, um, I think you had Lauren Ponch on, we sell, um, we sell our, um, we sell some heifers to him every year. Yep. Um, we also sell him some lambs, um, that are all grass fed all through our system. And, um, I mean, he, he's a, he's, he's one of those direct marketing success stories. Um, California has the market for it. Um, but we've always felt we feel we're grass managers first. And so our first job, we're managing pastures and we're using the livestock to harvest that feed rather than a diesel engine. Mm -hmm. Yep, and, on, on board with that 100%. And so we're really focused on that. And we really, we see a lot of value in being able to load a truck of animals and sell them and have them off. We feel that's a, that's a very efficient way to produce um, beef and, um, let somebody else finish the beef as they need to on the lamb side. We do it ourselves. We finish our own lambs. And like I said, we finish it both on grass and we have our feedlot. Um, and, um, it's about a, it's anywhere from 20 to 40% of the lambs go to town off of grass. But that that's one thing about, um, uh, sheep at least. And, and with seasonality of grasses and things you have, um, only so many will finish in an appropriate range. And then you have to eat, eat, eat when they're ready, you either have to ship them or you have to um, freeze them or, you know, after you sell them. And that's very expensive and inefficient. Um, and then you have an end that's never going to really finish unless you get a lot of age on them, which is also very expensive. And, and in lamb, uh, once they get over 12 months, they're no longer lamb. They have to be sold as mutton or yearlings. And um, so you have that time, 
thing. And so that's why we utilize that feedlot. We don't long feed anything. So um, longest days on feed in our feedlot will be 90 days max. Um, and we're trying to just feed to finish, not feed to grow. Um, right. But uh, can I ask what kind of ration you're feeding? Like I'm talking, uh, yeah, it's very, I'm not going to judge you if you're feeding a bunch of corn, I promise. Oh, it is corn. Um, I have no, I have no shame. I told you all, everything's on (laughs) happy to talk about it all. So it's a corn ration, um, and alfalfa, a trace mineral pellet and molasses. It's basically all it is. Pretty simple. Um, Yep. And it's 15 days to inverse from 75%, um, alfalfa hay to 75% corn in 15 days is our transition period. And then it's 45 days of corn and usually you get yield grade two to three on those lambs that won't finish on the grass. How does that compare to the the ones that do finish on grass? uh, Product wise, I would say there's very little difference um, because the marbling, intermuscular marbling and all that stuff. Financially, we is way cheaper to finish off a grass is more financially beneficial for us to finish off a grass. So we want to finish everything we can on grass. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people, um, people look at profits as a bad word, but if you really look at the economics of farming, um, <laughs> to provide, you know, that, that, that actually encourages you to, do, you to do best practices. Oftentimes those best practices and profitability are linked together. Um, you know, there's always going to be exemptions, but like I said, it, it costs us so much more to finish a lamb in the feedlot that we really don't want to do it. Especially a year like this when corn's going crazy. Yeah. Um, and we have a real risk of not even having a lot of feed available in California because of the rail car backups and all those kind of things. So, um, but I, you know, so as far as direct marketing, we don't do any of that. Our wool, um, we're very close to the brand, um, superior farms. We sell our lambs to, we work closely with them. Um, as far as what we're doing, um, we market grass finished lambs. If they're finished off the grass, um, I think like 98% of our sheep are ABF uh, antibiotic free. Um, cause we don't, once again, it's expensive to use antibiotics. We don't want to use antibiotics. And if something needs it, we'll use it because I don't want to be hundred percent. Cause I want to, <laughs> I want to keep things alive. Right. So if something needs antibiotics, I'm going to give it to them. Just sell them through a different channel. I, I do the same. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we do that. I do like, um, I love the developing direct markets. Um, but we also think it's a very hyper competitive space in California and we don't have the personnel or overhead to commit, to be able to compete correctly. We'd rather sell to a company that can do it. So I'd rather sell to a Lauren Poncha and let him compete. I'd rather sell to a superior and let them compete because once you start competing, you have to have salesmen, you have to have distributors, you have to have product management. I mean, it's a, it's almost a separate business on its own. So we try to really focus on the farming and ranching. You know, and at the volume that you're at, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, the most expensive thing we can do is sell 20 head a day, (laughs) every day. It's a lot easier to, like I said, send the, send the trucks. So yeah, yeah, for sure to move the volume, but that doesn't mean it won't change. So yeah, you're you're speaking of rail car backup. That reminded me, I saw an article just a few days ago that Union Pacific was saying that there were some delays up to 60 days on their network. Oh, it's horrible. Um, so yeah, it, it's really bad. Really, really bad right now. And so California uses a hundred percent of its corn harvest in the first quarter after harvest. Okay. Um, 
And so that means that 75% of the year, all of the corn used in California gets railed in. Well, California is home to foster farms, chickens, and um, they have some Harris Ranch and Snake River. Yeah. And oh, the Snake River is up in Idaho, but um, but Harris Ranch, yeah. But I mean, the main ones of foster farms is the chicken production. And um, we or we usually are able to buy um, truckloads, extra truckloads from them that they're bringing in. Um, we called them last week and we're like, oh, we need some corn. They said, oh, we don't have any. What? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really? None? Yeah, we have none. Oh, oh my God. Okay. All right. Oh. Well, let's, let's figure out how we're going to manage this because it's just, there's just not enough volume of rail cars coming through to haul enough corn in to satisfy that corn demand. Competition for those car spaces is just through the roof for all sorts of other commodities because of the 60 day backup. So you can order it and get it in in 90 days, 120 days. But if you need something now, you know, thankfully we have storage and, and we're, you know, we're in good shape, but still, it's just, it was, it was a shock. I've never had that happen in my life. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, before we jumped on the podcast, you know, you were saying that, uh, you, you and your friends started yours right, right after COVID. Um, yeah. it took CK a year to talk me into starting this one after, after COVID hit, I was a little bit slow. Um, but I've been trying to warn people even even since the very beginning to plan ahead yeah plan ahead these supply chain troubles that we've been seeing are going to continue so you know the things you know you're going to need for production in the next 6 12 months start worrying about that now rather than you know when you normally would which is 30 days before you needed it yeah you know that yeah so um when i need something in a pickle I call the best farmers in the area and all of them, almost all of them have it on hand because they'll plan ahead. That's what makes them good. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, that's so true is, I mean, even everything from, you know, scheduling your vet checks out ahead of time, scheduling your brand inspections before the day of the brand inspection needs to happen. And then, you know, to the larger extent, have your, you know, plan your budget a year ahead, have a, have a five-year general budget that you have ideas on where you're going, you know, in the future, you know, but like really that planning so much of my job, my job when I started was, you know, working sheep. It was in the field, in getting my hands dirty every single day. So much of my job now is planning what's, what's happening next month, what's happening next year. And when you're making those decisions, the day things are happening, that's when we're drowning. And the better you can do it, planning ahead, putting your orders in ahead, making sure you have, um, I mean, just a dewormers, making sure you have your dewormers a month before you need to put them in the animals, those kind of things all. Yeah. hundred percent agree with that. And that probably separates the better operators from the poorer ones more than anything is that planning ahead. It takes capital, but it's important. Well, and to get the capital, you do some more planning. Exactly. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. It all goes together. Oh, yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your cows. Sure. Sure. Love my girls. So you said you had uh, your primary black Angus, but you also crossed in some Wagyu. Yeah. So our cow herd's hundred percent Angus and we run two herds. We run a, and we do the same on our sheep, but we have a terminal, we call it a terminal herd and a maternal herd. Our maternal herds are going to be Angus on Angus 
the terminal herd are going to be Angus cows that get bred to Snake River Farms Wagyu bulls right now. Um, we do it that way. So that way, if something happens with Snake River Farms, I mean, nothing's going to, we've been with them for like 15, 20 years, but if something ever did, we could change overnight and breed those to whatever we wanted. We want to cross in Charlay. We want to do something else. We can do it overnight. But the main thing we're doing is we, um, we take our better cows and we keep them in our maternal line and then selectively breed based on what goals we have to the, that herd to then create. And then anything that doesn't fit those parameters goes into kind of that terminal herd. That is really that productive engine for the ranch. So we're kind of doing our own genetic push, but on a smaller scale of our cows. And then the rest of them are producing the income to allow us to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, what do you do with all your steers out of your maternal herd? Uh, right now we sell them as <laughs> we just sell them on the Western video market sale. Once a year, we keep them separate and, and, um, just sell them to commercial feed yards as okay. we need to. So, okay. So tell me about, uh, tell me about one of your biggest wrecks and what it taught you. Biggest wrecks. You can get me back to the sheep now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, big, biggest Rex. Um, you're going to make me consult my book. I got a book here somewhere. Um, there it is. So I have a book that I, I've been writing down my worst disasters in ever. And, um, I always try to take notes and remember what they are. And one day the goal is to maybe auction it off when I'm like 97 to, um, you know, somebody out in the, the middle of nowhere but um probably one of the biggest wrecks we ever had is we hmm, there's a few here but um <laughs> i i think probably one was uh, we bought in some lambs a couple years back and um we had uh we had them they, they started to break with coccidiosis symptoms and so we assumed it was coccidiosis we started to treat for coccidiosis we did everything we could. We gave thiamine to the sick ones. We, um, uh, fed alfalfa hay. We put corid in the water. We, everything we could, we had the vet out multiple times. And then, um, over a course of, a of about, a, it was probably two weeks by the time we took the, cause, and we also, um, UC Davis is like 20 minutes away. So oh, nice. we're really yeah. big, we're really big on getting necropsies and, and uh -huh. lab tests on stuff. And we work very closely with their veterinarian and all of these book of recs have taught me that you really need a great relationship with a veterinarian to be successful. Um, but anyway, so we finally took the, the sample, we had the samples finally come back and we tested for stuff and yeah, there was coccidiosis present, but it wasn't large enough load to necessarily kill the animal. And so we weren't sure what exactly was doing it. We were finally able to, to isolate it to a copper deficiency in the sheep that came from the source. So it was a copper deficiency for their upbringing before we even oh, had them on farm. Yeah. And um, if you know anything about sheep, sheep are highly sensitive to copper. And so most like you're not allowed to feed uh, copper in sheep minerals for the most part. You can't use multimin on sheep. You can't do anything like that um, because they're everybody's worried about killing the sheep. But to see that copper sensitivity expressed in such an extreme situation, um, was, um, was really amazing. 
Um, it's frustrating <laughs> because we had a wreck, but, um, you know, you kind of, I guess the thing I learned from it was, um, you know, you have your, your, your institutional information, but if I didn't have that relationship with that vet, and if I wasn't open to listening to different possibilities of things and figuring different deals out, we actually on those sheep, we gave them all a, we gave them, I won't say a dose because you're not supposed to feed. I don't want anybody getting any ideas, but we gave them all a shot of multimin under the directions of our vet and mm -hmm. we cured it, cured it overnight. <laughs> Almost. It was unbelievable how quickly that helped it. And exactly that's what it was, was that copper deficiency. But, um, you know, I'd been told my whole life that, you know, sheep are, can't have any copper. And then here, no copper did a bigger problem than any copper I've ever given to anything over the history. So like always be very attentive to every individual bunch of sheep and don't discount any potential problems. They always be open to these new problems and learning constantly and trying to figure out what's going on and gets back to that team of people you work with and, you know, leaning on them really heavily. You got any good tips for building a good ranch team? Uh, veterinarian step one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, I, and it's so hard in the, the further away from a population center, it is the harder it is to build a good relationship with a vet. But, um, I mean, that just, that, that he veterinarians go through so much schooling and they learn so much and, um, their expertise and the value they can bring to what you're doing extends so far beyond the, a a break or a problem that happens on that ranch. Um, and so often vets only see the problems. They don't see the good sides of the ranch and are able to give you advice to improve. So it's that those conversations. I mean, I have breeding herd, uh, breeding, um, discussions with them on what bulls I should breed to the next year. And those kind of questions, um, that, you know, wouldn't, aren't really tied to like a health issue, but, he's out there enough. He knows his cat. He knows our cattle. He knows what my goals are. He knows me as a person. And he's able to give me that third party advice from kind of an expert, um, side. The other thing is don't make decisions in silos, you know, make sure you're, you have a team. So I, I always say, start with a vet, but, um, the other side of it is, um, find a neighbor that you respect that's in your area. That's been through some stuff, hopefully a little older than you. And he lean on that trough of information and ask them questions and learn from them. Um, that was really helpful for me when I started growing up and then, um, just make, make sure you engage with people that aren't afraid to make mistakes, but learn from them when they do, you know, you gotta, as long as you're not making that same mistake twice, you're learning and that's more valuable than getting everything perfect because most of us won't get it perfect that first time. So really just having those conversations, building those relationships, try to find people that see you and what you're trying to do from an understanding and want to help you learn. And, um, you know, really try to bounce ideas off of them. Don't be afraid to share your mistakes. Like, like you asked there. Um, I think, you know, being, being honest about your mistakes and wrecks when they happen are really, that's how, that's where you learn the most. That's, that's when you're really learning is when you're in a, when you're in the middle of a mess. Uh, and that's not to say that you got to jump on a podcast and tell, you know, the whole world, everything you screwed up mm -mm. Yeah. at the, it, it starts with being honest with yourself. Yeah. yeah. And if you can at least be honest with yourself, maybe you can be honest with a friend or a therapist, but you don't necessarily have to, you know, 
have to jump on a podcast and bare your soul to the whole world. No, no. And thankfully there's guys like you that are doing it. So that helps. <laughs> that helps a lot of people. It's amazing how many people, um, you know, really are producing these animals and they don't have places to turn. They don't, they don't have people right. to lean on. And, and I think it's kind of the other side of that. I benefited greatly from the people that were willing to share with me. And so now that I've kind of cut my teeth a little bit, I've, I don't know if I've ever told anybody, no, I'm not going to tell you something. Like I've always tried to help where I can with who I can, um, because that's what got me to where I'm at. And if I can help someone else beat me and do even better than me and teach me something, I want that relationship. That's so that's how, that's how a healthy production system works is by everybody pushing each other to be better, not trying to keep others down. You got to You got to work you know, whatever you call it, you gotta, you gotta work with everybody. And, and that doesn't mean you don't have trade. I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody my rents, I'm going to keep things quiet on some stuff, but at the same time, you know, you gotta be willing to share to, to learn a little bit. A lot of times. I, I agree with that. And, uh, there's, don't want to say, don't want to say, not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me to say way more than I was thinking of saying. <laughs> um, why? No, I was just going to say something about, you know, um, never mind. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out a way to say it that wouldn't be offensive to somebody that I don't want to offend. Yeah. It's, and it's good to know that too. When you're, you know, you talk about sharing, you don't, you got to be respectful of people and that, you know, you don't necessarily want to say something that, you know, somebody's going to take wrong the wrong way. And that's going to hurt their production or their ability to be successful later on. It, that's, that's a very, that's a good thing. That's, that's a part of having good dialogue is understanding that question right there that you brought up. So, yeah. And there's no reason to feel like anybody's in competition with anybody else at the sale barn or wherever you choose to sell your cattle. And yeah. I, I guess one of the things I was going to say is uh, just a few seconds ago when I was tripping all over my words and myself, um, one of the things is um, that, that Dallas Mount says, yeah, you might be hitting a bullseye, but are you aiming at the right target? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and that, that's really like kind of relevant. Like, you know, the guys at the coffee shop here in the Midwest topic of conversation in about 60, 70 days is going to be, how's your wheat doing? What'd your wheat yield? What was the test weight? And it's all a contest, right? Yeah. It's all a contest. Are we aiming at that? Is that the right bullseye we should be aiming at? Or should we be looking at something like, how much do you increase your soil carbon this year? What's yeah. your water infiltration rate? Like those yeah. are the bragging rights I'd like to hear at the coffee shop. Well, and, and you brought up, so that's such a great point. Like what, what are we doing in farming? What, what, you know, what's that goal? And we've, we've narrowed it down to these base production numbers that are so easily swung to be able to brag more. So like in, in the sheep industry, it's lambing percentage. What's your lambing percentage? Well, I had 120% lamb crop use exposed to, to lambs wean. 
Well, actually it was 114% used exposed to lambs sold. Well, actually it was 150% used pregnancy scan pregnant to lambs born. Like, like you can, you could change that number based on whatever you want, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's just a bragging right number. But then you mentioned like, what, how much, what's the soil carbon capture of this ranch on this year? That's a number that measures sustainability of your place over a period of time. That means you're going to be a business next year. That's mm -hmm. way more important than my you're fictitious. Yeah. That that's like, it's really, and we have the tools to start measuring some of that stuff now that they didn't in the past, but um, kind of like those, those numbers that help you measure the sustainability of your ranch, the ability for you to be around for generations, those kind of numbers, that's, those are the valuable ones. I mean, you can get a higher yield by dumping more in, in the ground. I, I, you know, get some commercial nitrogen out there and I can go ahead and make that grass grow a little quicker. You but can, is you that going to help like me next cows. year? You can is that going to make any money? No. <laughs> yeah. And just like with cows, you can feed condition and fertility into anything. Yeah. Well, and I can, I can buy in twice the hay that I should just so that way I can say I got a thousand cows instead of the 872 that I should be having on the ranch. You know, you can mess those numbers up a lot. So yeah, being able to measure those kind of things like soil carbon, how much, how many pounds per acre did you produce on the grass that you grew only like those kind of numbers, those are valuable. That, that's where profitability and sustainability really reside. How many pounds of protein did you grow per acre? How many pounds of protein? You and know, wool. <laughs> and wool. Yeah. I'll admit I've got a really banging pair of wool socks that they're like they're like my favorite socks ever. Yeah. I haven't seen them come around in the laundry for a while, but yeah, wool socks. I'm on board. Yeah, they're pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. But no, that, that's a, yeah, that, so I didn't, I actually haven't mentioned. So one thing we, we did do as part of our wool marketing is we developed a carbon farm plan on our ranch. And so we actually measure that. And then we look at the different practices and we're trying to increase that number every year. Um, but um, that, that's, that kind of stuff I think is really important. Um, and I think more ranches, if more ranches pursued it, they'd realize that they, that there is, there's an, it gets back to that economics being linked to profitability that operating with these kind of ideas in mind actually leads to better economics on the ranch. Yeah. It leads to, you know, lower hay inputs, lower feed sub sub subsidy feeding hay <laughs> <laughs> feed less hay, but it really, it really does help a lot of that stuff. And so paying attention to it's really important. So yeah, like fed feed cost. It's uh, one of the top two profit killers in ranching. Yeah, hands down, absolutely. And it and it does. It's fed feed cost. It's the cost in the feed. And it's the cost in the time it takes to take that feed energy, and put it right. in a bale, move it from the stack to the yard into the barn, and then from the barn onto a truck, and then from the truck into the field, and then dumping it from the truck into that cow's mouth. Yeah, yep. I just that's so I'm expensive. So something Ryan that Brian and I talk about all the time is, is you really should start measuring production in, in energy units. <laughs> What's the energy to do this whole process? Because people aren't yeah. counting for the labor or, 
or any like fuel costs usually. Um, like how many BTUs of fuel did I burn to move all that hay? Energy unit, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I actually, so I went to lunch with my grandpa today and he asked me if I was going to put up any hay this year. And I told him no. And the reason I told him no is because I didn't want to run tractors over all the ground and lay it down and then run them again and put them in a bale and then run the trucks to move the bales into the barn. I'd rather leave it in the field, let it rot. We'll loose a little bit into the soil, but it's going to make a healthier pasture and a cheaper operation because so darn expensive to put up right now. You can come yeah. back through and graze graze that matured grass crop at high densities and what they don't eat, they're going to tromp into the ground. Yeah, so that's exactly what we do. Yeah, you're giving it to the soil. You're not losing it. So, yeah. No, not at all. I mean, it's, yeah, it's utilized in different ways. So, yeah. So we've talked about, we talk about sustainable, that words come up and there's yeah, problems. I try to avoid it because it's so cliche. And got there's problems with it. Yeah. yeah what's sustainable well, i've been in business we've been on the same ranch since 1870s that's pretty sustainable right yeah <laughs> it's but, like status quo yeah like yeah but if we're Stag- happy with sustainable that means that we're not interested in changing because yeah. this current state is okay and it can go on for a while mm-hmm. and i think that we can all agree that that's not the reality the reality is is we've got to do more than that we've got to regenerate you know, we've got to make things better. We've got to start taking steps, not just to sustain where we're at, but to make things better. Yeah, I'd say I'd say it a little differently. Um, I agree with you 100 percent. I would probably say it more that I mean, when we one of the mantras we have is we can always do better. We can always improve. And so, yes, we, you know, I jokingly say, yeah, we're a sustainable ranch. We've been around for 150 years pretty sustainable but we're sustainable because we're always trying to be better we're always trying to do it better we're trying to figure out a way to um make that healthier um you know the healthier soil to produce more feed um to be able to harvest through the animals in a better way Uh, we're always trying to drive to that better solution and yet that sustainable definitely implies like just keep it the same and um but you got to be driving to be better and that's and better in the right ways. Like it gets back to that. <laughs> what's your, what's your wheat yield versus, you know, what's your, uh, you know, what's your pounds produced per acre per, divided by the uh, inputs, <laughs> your energy input. Yeah. Kind of thing, you know? What's your carbon? What's your water infiltration? Yeah. We're going to come up with a pretty complicated algorithm that everybody can use in the country here by the end of this podcast. But, Uh, But I think, you know, I think that's, that's really, really a key insight to successful agriculture over the long term, especially in the US, because we've just, it's been so easy for so long to mine the ground, but we're running out of elements to mine, and we need to start rebuilding it and figuring out a way to keep it around in the longer for a longer period of time, because otherwise, one more, two more generations, we're not going to have the we're not going to have the soil carbon to grow enough grass to grow enough corn to ship to California to feed my sheep. You know, <laughs> it's, it's really, yeah. I, okay. I was going to say, I was going to go back down the whole corn road again, but we'll just, we'll detour. And no, go, go down it if you want. 
Well, how sustainable do you really think that is, that you have to import a, a very significant amount of the corn you need to feed your sheep, that you have to bring that across the Rocky Mountains? I think that it is unsustainable. But okay. I also think it is a good product right now today and it it works in today's system because the systems don't change every night they change over time right uh, the other problem is we can't we can't grow enough here in california the, so the california delta right next to us used to be all corn right now it's um 10 to 20 percent corn now it's growing pears and all these other Turkeys, different crops right? yeah so you know, it was the problem is the problem, the corn being railed to California, the sustainability, the only sustainability problem, because it's actually a result of an improvement in a ag diversity system locally. And it's one of those things that have to work out over time to correct. Um, we could feed wheat, we could switch to another grain, the Montezuma Hills grows a lot of grain. Uh, most of it's not um, food quality, most of it's, it's low in protein, so it'd be more feed grain. But um, once again, you're fighting against foster farms for their for that demand on the feed grain. So you know what's in the dairy. Again, in California dairy is a huge consumer of of these protein products or energy products, and energy not in gas, energy as in um, corn. You know, yeah. that carbo carbohydrate. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's sustainable forever. Uh, but right now, in our current economic state that's the best product that we have to be as sustainable as we can be. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't look for new ways. I, I want to look for new ways. I'd love to see new ways. Um, one of the, one of the downsides, or I don't know what the way to say that is. One of the difficulties is, is we believe in a very simple system and we want to keep it as simple as possible and make a simple change and change. We don't want to be trying all of these things every year for, 10 years and we got a different ration every six months. We want to make sure that when we find something different, we change it. Um, and with the type of, I mean, that, that makes total sense because yeah. when you do a ration change like that, your genetics are going to take a while to catch up to be able to perform the same. Well, it's more, not so much performance based as I'd be worried about um, animal health things going wrong. That when too. you change rations, you change the animals, what they do. And you have people that are watching those animals and those people have to learn the change and learn to look for new things at different periods of time and being able to react quickly. Whenever you make a change, you have to learn from that change. And usually you learn by having something happen. And I don't want those things to happen because I love my sheep. I want my sheep to thrive. I want them to be as happy and healthy and strong as possible. So that's, you know, I, I, um, <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth because I, I really believe in this. Um, I don't know what you call it. This focus on soil health. That's kind of starting to grow in, in the, in all of our livestock production industries, uh, because it's just, it's one of these things that we need to, people need to pay attention to. We can't uh, ignore it anymore. No. And it, but it, but it has to be solved locally because all of our systems are so different that the answers on my place are going to be different than the answers on my neighbor, different than the, than Lauren's answers, different from your answers. And we got to be sharing within each other because we'll learn something. But at the same time, we all got to make these changes 
differently. And then you have, I mean, you're dealing with these large industries and large things change slow. And that's the biggest problem. And the crazy thing too, is you have these brands that are pushing for products that want to be sold under the labels that, um, that, uh, like that, a regenerative or a soil yeah. health or an environmental yeah. label, a green one. Thank you. Yeah, they want to be under that. But then, but then they cut corners and they cheat. <laughs> like it's, it's so frustrating. And then so you have like um, somebody out there that's actually doing that practice, trying to sell that product for what it costs them to produce. And then you have a large, and then you have another person come in there that doesn't do any of them and they undercut the price and they sell it at a point that it's so much harder to actually produce at that regenerative level, so to say. And they, they undercut our ability to transition to what it actually does. Cause if the customer, I, I think the customer would pay if they understood, but so many of them don't understand because they're just getting inundated with sales pitches all day on Instagram. So. <laughs> That's about all Instagram is these days. It seemed like a sales pitches yeah. and I'm about done with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't log in a whole lot there anymore. I just, yeah, every once, I, I guess every once in a while I'll, I'll pitch an episode on there, but I just, if, if you're one of my Instagram fans, you want me to be more active, like let me know, but I just, yeah, kind of, I don't really like Instagram that much anymore. Yeah. It's all Facebook now. So um, yeah, there's a lot of fun to go argue with people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm Catholic. I gave up all social media for Lent. So I've been in paradise here for the last 40 days. <laughs> it's been great. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I have the strength or discipline to give it up. Yeah. I just read a, I just read a newspaper this morning. It was fantastic. <laughs> so, they still have those. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. A few of them, not many. <laughs> so. I, I shouldn't make, I know we have newspaper my county, uh, we still print a newspaper once a week. Yeah, delivery. I get the That's Monday awesome. news sometimes on Tuesday, yep. occasionally on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, I mean, I I love going down these kind of crazy rabbit holes, but you know, I it, I think I think one of the problems we have is before the Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff, people got their news from the coffee shop, right? They'd go to the coffee shop. And they talked to individual persons and those individual persons all had experiences and you liked them or you didn't like them or you trusted them or you didn't trust them. But then you filtered that information and that became your kind of world view. Well, now everybody pops up that screen and their worldview is just completely shaped by that scroll. And then they go and they talk to those same guys in the coffee shop and they don't even know who they are. And they talk right over each other and they don't, they don't have conversations and they're not digesting for themselves what's happening. They're just kind of regurgitating this thread that has just <laughs> turned their mind to mush. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. The difference in the way community, the way information is sent through our country nowadays. The speed at which a concept yeah. can, can get to the, the, the vast amount of people that it can that's what yeah. blows my mind now like just yeah well even like so like the the i mean i talked a little bit about the marketing or branding and stuff but if people could actually talk to farmers about regenerative agriculture or in carbon soil and um 
what that actually looks like on these different places, the more they're able to actually engage with the farmer, they're, they're usually blown away by who they are. And it's not, it's not um, small farmers versus big farmers or anything like that. It, it's just, they're just people. And you have farmers that are doing a bad job and you have farmers that are doing a good job. And when like, I try to get out there and try to tell somebody, so many people already have their mind made up before they even talk to a farmer. And so then they'll pretend like, well, you're not even a farmer or you're, you're a corporate or you're too big or you don't have, and really, I, I hope people can start to trust that these conversations are happening within agriculture and there is growing momentum within agriculture and not a hundred percent of any one person's idea is going to be what it's going to be. But people are starting to pay attention to this because like you said, we're running out of time to where we're not going to be able to keep pushing the envelope with synthetic fertilizers and things like that, where we have to come up with better ways to be sustainable for the next hundred years. And so, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I hope people can start trusting that these conversations are happening and they're not going to change overnight. Like everybody demands, they're going to change over decades because it takes time. I mean, what, I don't know, how long does it take to build an inch of soil, new soil? Isn't it like 150 years or something? For... You know, <laughs> we're never going to reach soil carbon saturation in our lifetime. Like yeah. I get the question all the time is it takes thousands of years to get back to what we've depleted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's so much like actually rebuilding the soil. It's like, a, we got to stop the bleeding. We got to stop the wind and the water yeah. erosion. And then we got to let the microorganisms and the nematodes and, you know, and then the fungi, we've got to let them do community. their thing yeah. and build their community. Yeah. And, and it's not that, it's not that we can't do it. It's just, we lack the will on the large scale. I think. I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of temptation to sell a product rather than to produce what, is supposed to be produced. You know, there's, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of false narratives that get promoted that undercut people's ability, our agriculture's ability to actually invest in that. You um, can't buy soil health in a box at tractor supply. No, you can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Among other things you cannot buy there. Um, you cannot buy a box of fire. Um, you can buy a box that contains devices to generate fire, but you don't buy a box of fire. Um, but yeah, you, you can't buy a box of soil health. And I feel like because like the farther you go down the regenerative rabbit trail, you know, you're looking at less input, growing everything you need on your farm. Well, who are the vendors you're going to be relying on? There's not many. And well, you know, those are the people that, you know, that, you know, if we're in, any other industry would be trying to sponsor this show, but you know, I, the people that, that have all the money are the ones promoting the use of antibiotics, the fertilizers, the pesticides, the herbicides, the neonicotinoids, the patented seeds. And the people telling us, Hey, there's a better way. Are the people not dependent on any of that? Yeah. Yeah. And the, and yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it's hard to not pay attention to all of the advertising that you're getting. Yeah. It's hard to ignore the salesman. 
right? It's hard to ignore the fertilizer salesman, hard to ignore those, that constant drum beat. I got a problem with uh, artichoke thistle. Well, the easiest solution is to disc it, nuke it, disc it, nuke it again, grow some crops and then go back to pasture, right? But no, like there's, there's, I got to find another way. And it's hard to find that other way. And I might not be successful, but it, it's hard <laughs> to, to ignore all of those calls and those temptations and that push. And um, yeah, because there's a lot of money behind it. You know, I talked about there how economic sustainability is tied to longevity of the ranch. Um, I really do believe that's true. But you have to make long-term decisions. If you try to make these short-term decisions, you end up really kind of hurting yourselves in the long run. And a lot of that gets down to long, you know, getting long-term leases. That's uh, trust over time with your relationships on people you're working with. It's um, there's so many layers to that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why it has to be locally solved. It's, it's, this isn't a, there's not going to be one thing that works for everybody. It's, it's going to be a lot of different people doing a lot of creative things over time. And if you can have that long-term goal in mind, and work towards it over time, you will be more sustainable and you will be more profitable, but it takes time and it's hard because you break and change path halfway through. You'll say, Oh, I didn't make any money. And now I'm fine. Well, you're fine for a few years, but you really need to start focusing on your long-term goals. And it takes time from, you know, a lot of these larger landholder agencies, they need to be willing to actually invest time in their, in their tenants. Yeah and put up the capital so that way tenants can actually put things in that are better for the rotation of livestock on their properties that you know there's so many of these big leases that um they put all the fence repairs and water trough repairs and everything on the tenant well that just encourages the tenant not to do anything <laughs> just load it up with stalker cattle burn it for three years and then leave a desolate barren place sounds and then the next year yeah i mean it's so true but um you know, and these are, these are in California, these are uh, environmental organizations that are putting these short-term leases together, or they'll do like a one-year trial within a potential for maybe something else later. Well, they're not giving any incentive for the farmer to actually invest its exactly. their time and expertise into the property. Like you gotta, it takes time, like 10 years, 20 years to how do you build change, trust on that? change yeah. something. Yeah. And how do you build trust overnight when they're going to just flip employees and pull the lease out from under you in two years. Just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's yeah. Difficult situation to try to build trust in with an organization like that, that you know, that's most likely been traditionally adversarial towards, you know, ranchers and agriculture in general. Yep. I can definitely see that. So, You've been talking about uh, about your irrigation, yep. And you know, kind of at the beginning, we mentioned Oroville Dam and you know that whole that whole situation. Which I watched that whole situation with extreme interest because I'm kind of an engineering nerd, and that was just Dude. a that was it was really incredible to see like how that all unfolded, how they fixed it, and now how they've analyzed it and understood how it all happened. Anyway, that's not what I'm. That's not where I want to go. Um, irrigation water, like how, how dependent are you on irrigation and how, how has that been performing for you over the years? And are you worried that that might 
come to an end? Um, there's a lot there. Um, first, I got a buddy who was, he works for an explosives company and he was on the Oroville job. And he said there was places where it was less than an inch thick in that dam. I mean, it was so close to going. And I mean, that there's a couple million people that live underneath that thing. And there would have been a 40, 50 foot wall of water going down on Marysville and some of these towns. Like that was, I still can't believe that that held. And I mean, I truly think it was an act of God to keep it up there. I, I got tuned in to that, um, on the Blanco Lirio channel, which I'm probably sure you're familiar with that guy. Uh, he's, he's from that area and he made a lot of videos of the dam. Like he yeah. was doing almost daily updates for a while. He's got an airplane. He'd fly by oh, wow. and do aerial shots. Yeah. It's airline pilot. I mean, pretty sharp yeah. guy. He, anyway. Um, so I was tuned into that, like from the original, like when they discovered the original cracks and that primary spillway started yeah. to fail. And then when it started to go over the emergency spillway, that's about right. When I started to tune in, I was like, Oh, water over an emergency spillway. That's never good. Oh, tallest dam in the country. That's really bad. And uh, yeah, I was sucked in after that. Oh man, that was unreal. So irrigation water, um, we have, uh, yes, we are dependent on irrigation. We are dependent on irrigation because we're very seasonal in our grasslands in California. Um, so like I said, the rain is in the winter. Our grass grows from, you know, it grows in the fall when we get fall rains stops growing in December, January, February, starts growing in March and grows until about May 1st of June. And then it dies out in order for us to have high quality feed to deliver grass fat animals over the summertime. Um, we need to have irrigated pasture in order to do it. So it's very important for us and we're very dependent on it. Um, all of our irrigation water comes from the Sacramento river Delta. Um, we have, three we have different ranches and different water districts um well so we have two water districts um all of it is pumped out of the river um all of the water districts are worked off are are uh built off of uh, uh, a kind of a recycle recapture so the top branch uses the water the drain goes in and that drain water goes and feeds water to the next ranch and the next ranch and the next ranch so it's it's a it's an enclosed system, so to say, where the water gets pumped once and then gravity fed through all of the ranches until it goes to the river. Um, we do have one ranch that is a, I think it's like an 1898 riparian right, functions the same way, except we have a drain pump in the end of the drain that then pulls it back up and puts it back into the head ditch. Um, so when we put that in, we were using about six acre feet per acre on that ranch of fresh water out of the river getting pumped into the ranch. When we put in that um, return system, we went down to where we only need to pump about two and a half to three acre feet per acre. Um, so we cut our water demand in half from the Delta. Um, water rights in California are incredibly complicated, um, challenging. They're always in court. They're always getting pushed back and forth. Um, we have layered rights in all of our areas and I can get into that if you want, but there's um, probably, all, you could probably start a podcast on just yeah. taking apart California water. I, rights. I don't know how long you have. And so most people would just turn it off because they're not in California. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> it's, it's really complicated, but it, it, there is, there is a lot of water in California. Um, mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that's the thing I guess to start with. There's a lot of water in California. 
we have very good growing season combination of lots of water and growing season is why we have such diversity in our production over here yeah um, yeah so we're able to ship it around quite a bit yeah. oh everything is flood irrigated so because yeah. we because we take our drains and recycle them and use them again okay everything mm -hmm. is going to be flood flood irrigated and then brought back up we also um we also test the water going off the ranch to make sure we're not putting any pollutants in yeah awesome awesome yeah. Well, you about uh, about ready to get out of here? <laughs> I don't know how long we've been going. <laughs> this uh, is quite over, a while. A little over an hour and a half. Uh, oh, that's pretty solid. That went quick. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So even though you're on, you're taking a social media break from Lent, it'll be, I don't know where my sheet went. It'll be a while before this one comes out. Lent's over tomorrow, right? Yeah. Mon oh, yeah. Saturday. Saturday at 730. Saturday. Time to party. So now or PM. So now everybody knows what it PM. Yeah. Oh, dang. Yeah. No, sundown on Saturday starts. Okay. That's what it, I was asking my husband about that. I'm just like, we're very bad. <laughs> yeah. That's all good. Yep. But yeah, no. So I'll be back on, I'll be back on social media and all that stuff. So. All right. I'm trying to publish this. Yep. So other than your sheep stuff, you should know podcast. Where else? Yeah. And traffic to in my show notes. Oh, uh, you can send traffic, all hate mail, whatever you want. It goes to at California Sheep Rancher on the Instagram. And uh, yeah, I gosh, I got to say thank you for having me on. And and one thing I've always believed in and I really appreciate is is just having good conversations about issues and things. And so, you know, if somebody has a question or doesn't like something I said, you know, don't don't feel bad about asking me and thinking you're going to say it in a mean way. I I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to have conversations and I'm happy to be challenged on my thoughts. Cause I know I don't have everything right right now. And I, I, I love learning. So commitment to be a lifelong learner. I think that's why we're in regenerative ag. Cause we're still <laughs> learning about things and we haven't just decided that, that the crop yeah. consultant and the seed salesman know everything. Cause we can always do it better. No matter where we're at, we can do it better. So, yep. For sure. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. It's been absolutely awesome. Thank you. I, I, gosh, I really appreciate being on. This has been fun. Yep. All right, gang. Have a great week.